Welcome to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies to improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to help improve financial results in our beer business, and now I'm helping other craft breweries do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast. My name is Kerry Shumway and I'll be your host. Today I sit down with Bump Williams from Bump Williams Consulting. Bump's firm provides insights, assistance, and database recommendations to help their clients grow their businesses. I've worked with Bump for over 10 years and I can certainly attest to this. Bump is very connected in the beer industry. He knows everybody. Everybody knows him. And he combines that knowledge with data to provide really great guidance and advice to help any business grow. So we cover a lot of topics in this podcast today, particularly talking a lot about what's going on at retail. What are we What are we seeing in terms of pack sizes, sales trends, pricing? We get into some really tough questions such as, beer recalls due to out of code, what's going to happen there? What what are some things that breweries can and should be thinking about? We talk about really what craft suppliers can do to compete with the larger packs of the bigger breweries when perhaps smaller breweries don't have the flexibility to create new packages. And we look into how suppliers can support their off-premise customers during this time. So we cover a lot of ground, dig into a lot of good stuff, so for now, please enjoy my conversation with Bump Williams. Bump Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kerry. I appreciate that. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. So we are recording this in mid-May of 2020, and the world's a really different place from just a few months ago. And obviously, the beer industry is a really different place as well. So I'm curious, could you give listeners your state of the beer industry? Like, what are you seeing? What are you hearing out there? All right. Um, sure. I, I, and I always do things probably in, in buckets of, of three to five things. So number one is all of beverage alcohol continues to grow across the United States and the off-premise arena. On-premise is obviously dried up. So off-premise continues to post for eight, nine. I think this is our 10th week of tracking weekly sales data from IRI. And it's the 10th consecutive week of double-digit growth for total beverage alcohol, for beer, obviously, for every segment of beer, wine, table, sparkling wine, that's all double-digit growth. Spirits continues to go double-digit growth, and that's across everything that makes up spirits. So vodkas, gins, tequilas, rums, whiskeys, everything's up double-digit, continues to perform that way. The second thing is, I, I think consumers, I don't think, I know this, is that consumers for the first week ending March 8th, March 15th, and probably the 22nd, we saw a lot of panic loading or pantry loading, whatever you want to call it. And it was shoppers going, oh man, I'm going to be quarantined. I'm going to buy as many suitcases or 30 packs as I can. And I don't care whether it's Bud, Miller, or Coors. I don't care. If I'm going to get stuck in the house with my wife or my husband or the kids or whomever it might be, man, I, I do not want to run out of stock at the house. So people went out and thought they bought two or three weeks of 
of Bud Miller and Coors out there, and they drank it in week one. So we saw a lot of repeat purchases, but it really went to those big suits and 30 packs of, of, of more established brands, Kerry. Um, we, we know this is the third thing. We know that, that in home or at home consumption of beverage alcohol is on the rise. We did a big survey of that across America, probably uh, three weeks ago. And everybody said the same thing. Eh, I can't say everybody. Majority of people said the same thing. We're drinking more because I'm working out of the house. I don't have to fight traffic. I'm not, I'm not stuck in traffic. I'm not on a train. I'm not on a plane. I'm not in a hotel room. When, when my work's done at four o'clock, I can go on the back deck and I can have a beer. And, that, and that's what they're doing. So we see that happening. We also saw like in the wine category, three liter, four liter, five liter boxes of wine just skyrocketed. So we knew what was happening at home. And that's that's not going to change. Um, the, the, the next bucket, which I think is bucket four, is we've noticed the past two or three weeks, right up leading up into Cinco, that, that consumers went out and they started to buy 12 packs again. And they started to buy 12 packs of imports. They started to buy 12 packs of craft. Everybody from, from the get-go. From, from 2016, has been buying as many 12 packs of White Claw and Truly as they can get their hands on. So that's still at a 400% growth clip week over week versus year ago periods. We're, we're looking at that happening. And then my last bucket, carry is I I think I, I got I to gotta tip my hat to everybody in the DSD business, uh, direct store delivered business, and particularly in this case, beer distributors who the frontline sales folks, the folks that deliver the beer, the folks that pack it out, the, the folks that, that merchandise, if, if they're allowed to go in and merchandise, these guys have, have eliminated or, or prevented or minimized out of stocks of the most valuable category across all consumer packaged goods during this COVID period, that being beer. Beer has been the, the highest dollar generator across every single category. It's bigger than paper towels. It's bigger than bathroom tissue. It's bigger than soup. It's bigger than frozen pizza. It's, just, it's the biggest category out there. And what what's the beer distribution network done? It's every single day they're out there re replenishing the shelves. They're they're doing what they what they were trained to do from 1933 when prohibition was ended. That they, they just service the retailer. They service the consumer. They service their brewer partners. They get the job done. And so my hat, I mean, that's the five big buckets is I think the distributors have really reinforced to their retailer partners the value of DSD and the value of working with a great quality distribution network. So that's that's kind of my state of the union. I hope I didn't go too long. No, that's great. I think that's a great recap. And, you know, no doubt people are not drinking less beer right they're just or alcohol they're just drinking it differently in different places you know uh, yeah so so by my numbers and this is going back some some time but my numbers i have on premise and, and it does not include um all the tasting rooms and the and the liquid centers and all the brew pubs it doesn't include that but traditional on-premise bars restaurants taverns chain and independent I've got that accounted for about 18%. For every 100 barrels of beer sold, 18 barrels goes through that on-premise channel. 
that dried up week ending March 15th, pretty much across the United States. So even though I couldn't go to my local brewery and, and have a beer with, with friends or after a ball game, go there, have some beers at the local bar, it doesn't mean I stopped drinking. It just means that I can't do it with my friends. So I'm going to, I'm going to do it at home. And that's what, that's what consumers are doing. They're having, they're having like you and I are having this virtual meeting. We're having virtual happy hours. I mean, every single day, my wife gets on with her high school, her old high school friends. They're, they're well over 21, but she gets on with her high school friends and she gets on with her college friends and she gets on with her work friends and they have virtual happy hours every night. It, it lasts an hour. But, you know, if she's drinking a beer and someone else is drinking spirits, it just the drinking habits haven't dried up. They just we're not going to the bars, restaurants and taverns because we can't. But we are finding a way to celebrate what the good things we have right now. And they're doing that at home. And I th- I'll tell you something else, Carrie, is I think drinking's actually gone up. I, I know it has when I look at consumer data or when I look at at uh, retailer specific data. I know consumer imbibing's gone up. And one of the big reasons I asked some of my wife's girlfriends, so why is that? She says, hey, I'm drinking more now than I ever have because I don't have to worry about DUIs. I'm already home. And it plays a big role. I really do. So a lot of things going on. I would I would agree with that. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you're going out, you're, you're really trying to be smart about how many you're drinking and where, you know, this and that. And now it's like, hey, you're not going anywhere. So you might as well have have a couple extra, but I have one more is right. So I don't worry. And, and I, you know, we, we make fun of that. Obviously we're, we're both of us are big proponents of, of, um, you know, drinking in moderation, obviously. But when I see folks at home and they're having an extra glass of wine or an extra bottle of booze, or I, I should say an extra cocktail or a couple extra beers, they don't have to worry about driving home. They're, they're already there. So I think that's also driven. That's one of the things is driven beer consumption. Great. Um, so the big question, obviously, everybody wants to know is when when we're going to come out of this whole, or notwithstanding, you know, staying home and having that, you know, people do obviously want to get back out there. So when are we going to come out? How long is it going to take? What's it going to look like? These are questions that obviously no one knows the answer to, but I, I wanted you to peer into your into Bump's crystal ball and uh, maybe just give us your best assessment of what you see. So, so when do I think it's going to end? Yeah. All right. You know, every every webcast or podcast or, you know, NBC nightly news type stuff, they always ask me that question. And I, I give them the same answer, Carrie. It's like it's like what Yogi Berra said. Hey, it's hard to, to predict, but it's it's really hard to predict the future. So who am I to, to go up against the Hall of Famer and, and try and predict the future? But this is what I this is what I think's happening is. Every state, there, there is no playbook. It, I mean, everybody knows there's no playbook. It's been confusing that, hey, you're going to be in quarantine for a couple of weeks. We're going to see what happens. And, oh, we're going to close everything down. No shopping. You can't go here. You can't go there. And, and I think the majority of, of the U.S. population, we were scared. We, we didn't know. It had never happened to us before. Um, local governments and federal governments were kind of at odds with each other. So nobody knew what to do. We were scared. And so we played along and we, we, we were good. We went to the stores and we, we, like I said, we stockpiled up and then the rules have changed. Now it's, it's kind of, it's, it's okay to, to dip your toe in the water. Some states are starting to have a phased rollout 
of the on-premises, um, you know, the brew pubs, bars and restaurants and taverns. And then there's going to be a check in those states and those counties and, and towns where where bars and restaurants are open again. And then if if COVID goes back up, then they're going to shut them right back down. So we're still kind of treading, um, you know, on thin ice right now. We just we just don't know how, when it's going to happen. But but I know with the warm weather here, the sunny the sunny weather out, um, some beaches are starting to get open again. Um, people are just getting antsy. I mean, think about this, Carrie. Is when I think about when I think about anybody, I don't care whether they're in the United States or elsewhere. Nobody wants to be held hostage. Nobody wants to be a prisoner. And here we are in, in week nine or week 10 of being held under house arrest. People are tired of it. Weather's getting better. Like I said, we miss our families. Think about all the graduations we've missed and anniversaries we've missed and weddings that have been called off. And, you know, March Madness was gone. The Masters was gone. Oktoberfest is canceled. Uh, opening day of baseball. All this stuff has been taken from us and and we just took it and now people are saying i i can't take it anymore so we're, we're starting to see groups of people getting together they're starting to get together out in parking lots or they're getting a bit they're getting together in somebody's driveway and even though they wear masks and they and they practice this um Social distancing is a bad word. Luster Jones said to change that to, I think maybe it's practical distancing. Uh, distancing. So people are still they're not ready to give each other hugs and shake hands and stuff like that yet, but but they're willing, they, they got to have social contact. And we're at that point now, we're at that tipping point where I see consumers start to go out to places, whether it's a speakeasy, which we all know that's illegal, but I can go knock on the back door of somebody's bar and they'll say, hey, two bits and I'll say in a shave, you know, so there's, there's secret passwords that you can get into. And I think we're starting to see more of that. So I think. Uh, and, and again, I, my fingers are crossed on this one, but it's like one of these. I'm, I'm flipping a coin of it. I'm hoping by July one and I, I'm putting all politics aside. I'm putting all fake media aside or all misleading media aside. And I'm, I'm saying. What's going on right now across every state and what I see happening as some businesses are allowed to remain open, why aren't bars and restaurants allowed to open up? Why are we putting so many people at risk of not being able to to make a living or, or um, have a dream come true? I, I think we're going to start to see that, that dimmer switch turned on right now. And I'm hoping by July 1, before 4th of July, it would be a great time to turn that dimmer switch from zero to gradually turn it up to, you know, hundred percent. So I'm, I'm going to say July one and I'm, and I'm an optimist on this one, but that's kind of the numbers I've been running for, for States and for some other branches of government, looking at what I think can happen and, and the safety behind that. I hope I didn't ramble on too much, Carrie, but that's, that's the million dollar question is when's it going to open up? Yeah, absolutely. And nobody knows. And I think, you know, from a planning perspective, obviously my my focus is, you know, financial planning and doing the reforecast and, you know, what what's on and off going to look like. And we're we're doing the best we can to just guess, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. well, if it opens here, it opens there. But July one, hey, that that would be great. I hope I hope that's what it is. Yeah. But you you know, let's let's take the business and, and cut it up really into two pieces. Off premises is as healthy now as it's ever been. Uh, distributors are telling me across the country that 
the last two weeks, the week, the week before Cinco and the week leading up to Cinco were the two strongest weeks of STRs that they've had in the history of their distributorship. Think about that. It's bigger than 4th of July. It's, it's bigger than Memorial Day or Labor Day. It's, it's bigger than all those holidays. And we're not even the summer yet. So on off-premise has been has been reaping all the benefits of, of consumer panic buying and pantry loading. On-premise, I don't think will ever be the same again, at least not this year. It won't be this year. And I think it's going to be bleeding into probably 2021 before on-premise starts to get back on track. And, and I say that for a couple reasons is if there's 300,000 on-premise restaurants in, or on-premise establishments in America, my guess right now is a third of those guys have gone by the wayside. And by the way, that includes the tasting rooms and the, and the brew pubs and stuff. And, and, and they've died. They've just died. The guys that are hanging on, Carrie, when that, when that all clear bell or that dimmer switch starts to get turned back on, I, I'm going to want to go out, but I'm going to be really reluctant to go to a bar where people are jammed up next to me, or I'm going to go to a restaurant where the table is, is two feet away from me, like it, like it was in the past. So on-premise guys are stuck with a couple things. How, how do we, how do we entice people to come back in? How do we make them feel safe? What do I need to do with my wait staff? What do I need to do with my menu? What do I need to do with my draft lines just to make people feel safe? I mean, am I going to put, shower curtains up between tables i and that's happening over in europe right now but i'm not sure that's that's the way to do it but i think consumers are going to be very very reluctant to go out the smart ones are other other folks are just going to when that bell goes off it's like a starting gun they're got they're off they're going to start drinking and i think we're going to see a recurrence of covid when that happens i do but these on-premise guys i don't know how many more of them if we have this dimmer switch approach how many more we're going to lose during this dimmer switch? I think they're just hanging on right now by the skin of their teeth. So say we lose another 5 or 10%. Come 2021, those restaurants that were open in 2020 that closed during COVID, somebody's going to buy that property. Someone's going to reopen that restaurant. It may, be a, it may not be you know, Tony's Bar and Grill. It may be Bumps, Bumps Bar and Grill, but someone's going to buy that property. So we'll slowly see start to see that on-premise come back to life. But that mortality rate, I think, is pretty high right now. And, and again, the off-premise, folks have changed their purchase behavior. And I think off-premise will continue to get this halo effect of more and more shoppers saying, you know, that's not too bad going to a, a grocery store. It's not too bad going to a, a liquor store or a bottle shop or a big club store to buy these things because they were always in stock and they've got what I want and they've got a really broad selection. So, I think that's there's just some big changes coming at the end here. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's it's changed consumer behavior, and then it's a question as to whether that's going to continue on into the future when, as you said, that dimmer switch gets dialed up. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I wanted to dig in a little bit on. So you you had mentioned you know distributors having you know maybe pre and post uh, May fifth some of their best weeks ever. You talked a little bit about the packages that you're seeing moving. Like initially, it was. 30 packs, just grabbing whatever. And then now maybe it's going to 12 packs. Do you, what do you see in the data relative to um, the smaller pack size and maybe even specifically like at Wormtown, obviously our, our main on 
off-premise pack is a, a 16 ounce four pack. And I know a lot of small to mid-sized breweries that that's kind of this at least in the northeast anyhow that that's the sweet spot of package what do you see for that or is that kind of starting to fade into the distance given the fact that people are buying more in bulk all right so like i said i I talk everything in buckets so like you said out of the gate people went to the suitcases and 30 packs and they went in a big way and at the end of calendar 19 Half of the top 25 biggest volume brands in the country were in decline. Half of them. Today, when I look at year to date and I look at that 10-week COVID period, if I aggregate those 10 individual weeks together, every one of the top 25 brands in the country, largest brands are in positive. Most of them are in double-digit growth. So that's a massive change. And is it because they were in suitcases in 30s? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with that. I also think a lot of it has to do with with money. Uh, if I got furloughed or I got laid off or I knew my my uh, company was was in jeopardy of closing down, I think people started to pinch pennies a lot earlier. So I I could spend instead of spending sixteen ninety nine or seventeen ninety nine on a on a twelve pack or uh, ten ninety nine on a four sixteen, uh, I'm going to spend seventeen ninety nine on a thirty pack. So I think that happened right away. And then I talked about 12-packs coming back, 12-pack cans, 12-pack glass. Everybody thinks it's all cans. There's a lot of glass out there. And and 12-pack cans have always been, for as long as I can remember, the, the number one selling package type in beer. It's still the number one selling um, incremental dollar driver today, 12-pack cans. You mentioned 416s. And you're right. Up in New England, the Northeast area, 416s have been a um, a really popular package. Even if it's 16 pack loose, where I can go to, I could go to a Wormtown and buy a selection of 16 ounces because they're special releases, or it's hard to find them at at retail. We're a unique environment up here where I think the majority of of the volume is going through little small mom and pops or little small bodegas or, or independent liquor stores or the smaller stores at four sixteens made sense. And consumers wanted that because I could walk into Wormtown and I could see you or Digger or, or uh, David or anybody else over there. And I, I, I could, I could, I could buy some from you and four sixteens were the ones we're not seeing that across the country. And, and, I, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. Number one is 16 ounce cans are, had been primarily a convenience store package. C-store operators like to break those up and sell them as, as roadies. Um, and it, it's a good way to generate trial. But we've seen C-store, uh, the percentage of volume that convenience stores account for, start to start to shrink a little bit because I'm not filling my truck up with gas every week because I, I don't have to go to work every week or I'm not driving as much. So... C-Stores has, has been shrinking, and I think that's impacted the national 16-ounce can volume. Just recently, the last week leading up to Cinco, we saw convenience stores make a jump back up. But 16-ounce cans weren't one of the biggest gainers. They weren't one of the biggest uh, contributors to the growth of the category. It's, it's still 12-12s or, uh, you know, 24-12s or yeah, even 30s are in there, but mostly 24s in a 12-pack can, 12-pack glass. That's, that's what we've been seeing from a national uh, a national level anyway. I, I will 
I'll add this too as a third bucket, I guess, is there's a lot of local breweries near me that that I, I was buying their beer when I could find it in the off premise. I I was buying their beer when I could go and and, and stop in for uh, a beer after work or a beer after a meeting. I'm still driving through. They've got pickup now or drive through. I'm still going over there and I'm buying a bunch of 16 ounce cans from those guys. So that's still happening, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to what, what the availability was of, of those package types prior to COVID hitting on a weekending March 8th. That, that's the way I look at that. Yeah, absolutely. And are you, would you advise breweries, I guess, who are not in 12 packs or those larger pack size to start getting in there? Or is that something maybe wait and evaluate it? How do you, how do you, uh, yeah. like that? that's a great question. And prior to, prior to COVID hitting, um, there were, we, we laid out, we've got about 500 brewers who are, who are, I think it was 476 is the number who are, who are brewer customers of ours that we, we helped to write their business plans for one, two, three years out. Everything that we did in 2019 for these guys, carry it's, it's kind of been put on hold. We, we called a full time out and now it's survival mode. It, it's, it's gone from growth mode to let's survive. And there's some things that we've done with our customers to help them out. Basically, it's survival mode. Majority of their volume is dried up because consumers can't come into their tasting room and, and buy the beer. It just can't happen. So now they're, they're, they're at that fork in the road. If they had distributor relations and they had picked good distributor partners and they had a chain presence, they had an off-premise presence, they've got a better route for survival than the guys that that looked inward only and said, I don't need distributors and I don't need retailers. I'm going to be a hundred percent direct to consumer. Those guys are the ones that have the highest mortality rate and that long tail of beer brands out there right now. So those guys are in trouble. So the guys that, that had a good business plan, they had good people, they had good leadership. Um, they had great distributors. They they had retail presence. They had good consumer pull. They had great points of differentiation. Those are the ones that who are now saying to us, "Look, we've been in glass, and you told us to 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 also offer packages and cans. We've done that. It's been successful. We don't have the ability to do a fifteen pack can like Founders or Goose Island or some of the some of the other bigger brewers, but we can do a twelve pack can. Do it." Because that's where consumers are migrating to. It now we're facing that crossroad carry where is there going to be a can shortage? Can inventory is wicked tight right now, but we're we're blessed. Our industry is blessed where we've got a great vessel in glass that if I run out of cans or I run out of crowns or or, or tops of my cans, I can always put that in in glass. And, I'll, and most of the breweries we work with, they've they've got it. They've got a bottle line too. So if we run out of cans, carry, we're lucky. We can we can go to glass and 12 pack again is is what consumers are looking for. So we are advising our customers to look into multi-packs. And whether it's a it's a joint venture or an alliance or a new business partner that they take on or align themselves with who have that ability to put together multi-packs for them, God love them. And, and we steer them that way. If they've got to do some co-packing with somebody, God, do it. Do it because that's what 
that's what retailers want. That's what distributors want. That's what consumers want. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, it's a long answer to your question, but it's, it's different strategies right now. No, I, th- I think that's great information and great advice. And, you know, the other thing that I've seen during this is that it this, uh, you said survival, it's really accelerates stuff like this, right? You know, usually you think about it, maybe we will, maybe we will. Now it's like, you don't really have time to do that. You just got to get out there and get going. And yeah. that can, that can be refreshing too, because you don't ruminate on certain things. You just act. And, yeah. uh, you know, you would ask me, I forget to say this. And, and again, my mind is, it's not where it should be, but um, 16s were, were a high growth package, but let's not forget 19 twos. 19 twos were where everybody was focused. I got to get this in 19 twos, another great C store package. They've all but, but dried up. We're still seeing some volume, but that base isn't where we thought it was going to be at this point in 2020. So we've seen some declines in 16s and, and 19 twos. And again, I attribute that mostly to to that being a C store package. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. It's really interesting. I mean, even for myself personally, it's you know, you, you'd be I'd be gassing up twice a week with with the driving. I go what you know, once every three weeks now, two weeks. It's so yeah, that's an opportunity lost. You know, I'd be like, ah, I'm pumping up, I'm jumping in there and grabbing and right. That's that's a whole yeah. behavior change, right? Yeah, I mean that it's. I actually got rebates back from my car insurance company because. My mileage is weighed down, so they're giving me monthly rebates back because because they're saying, "Hey, you're not driving. We're going to give this to you." And, and I think I've gotten the sixty dollars back two two thirty dollar checks. You know, one in one in April and already one back in May. So yeah, it's, I'm not going out to see stores as much. I'm just not right. Yeah, I want to I want to pivot a little here and ask you, um, I guess personally, professionally, what are you learning from this? crisis and you can answer this any way you want it's it could be you know business lessons or crisis management lessons or preparedness so when when you kind of you know sit sit here and look at where we're at what what are you learning personally or professionally here all right so i i guess there's i guess there's two things on this one number one is i count myself as being very lucky and and very blessed because I think in 2019, I was away from home 242 days. Now that was, that was 2018, 2019. I was, I was gone 214 days this year, Carrie, I don't, I don't think I'll break a hundred days away from home, but, but my business is still healthy. Um, I think my efficiency has improved. We, we actually hired, more employees for the BWC company than we than we did in 2019. We're adding staff. Um, our workload gets bigger and bigger and bigger, which is good. And 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 I'm and I'm, I'm so pleased and, and happy and, and grateful to the folks who trust us with their futures to do work for them. So I've been blessed about that. Out of out of that gate, though, I, I, I'm questioning: Do I need to travel as much? in 2021 as i have in the, in the past and carrie you, you you and i are are we're seasoned veterans i think i mean this is 41 years for me but um i think about how i how i was trained in the business and it was calling on retailers and shaking their hands and and seeing them every week and when i gave them my word i kept my word and and that built relationships and i was big 
on building relationships. I still am. And I'm going to miss, I miss that part of the business. I miss, I miss going to a bar after a ball game or after batting practice or, or whatever I do outside fly fishing, whatever I do, I miss going to a bar and buying a pitcher and then having the guy next to me buy a pitcher. And then the woman across me, she's with us. She's buying some pitcher. I miss that. Has it impacted my business not getting out? No, it's just the opposite. My business has grown um, phenomenally, and I'm very blessed on that one, but I'm not getting out as much. And I think that will be a change for me going forward. And I think it's going to happen with distributors. I know distributors are already having business plans, whether it's Q1 updates or whether it's Q2 plans or whether it's post-COVID launch strategies. They're having multiple meetings using Zoom or GoTo or Google meetings that they say our efficiencies improved immensely and our, and our expenses have been reduced phenomenally because we're able to have all these meetings in one day and, and not travel and not be out of the office. So retailers are doing the same thing. And retailers are saying, bump, I can now have five meetings a day with brewer partners or with distributor partners or, or joint meetings that it used to be spaced out where I had to wait and people would come up, we'd sign in and we'd, we'd talk about the family and how coffee was. Now it's, hey, you got 30 minutes or you got 40 minutes on the phone. What do you want to talk about? And that's this efficiency. It, it, I, I think it's going to carry through to 2021 post-COVID. So that's that's the one scenario. Here's the other thing, which I think maybe it's misunderstood, is there's a lot of finger pointing right now that I'm out of business or you're not giving me my share of mine or I'm not getting execution or how come my brand's not not where it should be with you guys. And the, this is coming from companies that in my mind, they had a, a brand problem or they had a, a business problem with their retail partners or their distributor partners, or they had a... Uh, a branding problem internally. Their their folks weren't weren't focused. They didn't have to do lists. They weren't uh, they didn't have good business acumen. They weren't they weren't focused on execution. They didn't have scorecards. Those are the guys. Those are the breweries. Those are the businesses that I think have gone out of business. It, I think even without COVID this year, I think a lot of those breweries that are now out of business because of COVID. They would have gone out of business anyway throughout this year because they didn't have that business acumen or the distributor relationships or the chain strategies or the brand points of differentiation. They didn't, they weren't holding folks accountable. They weren't, they were they didn't have trained staff internally to to understand, uh, to analyze and evaluate the market and put together a game plan and then track it and scorecard it. They would have gone out anyway. So I think about how how smart businesses are are taking this situation and they're saying I can survive. I I can make the best of this situation. I'm going to I've got combat veterans who have been through tough times before um, and we know how to get around this and then there's the other camp which have been peacetime generals that have simply been order takers. People come in and give them an order. They don't have to go out and and call on chains. They don't have to go out and do ride alongs. They don't have to go out and put together a business plan or have strategies behind that or, or tactics. It's, it's simply been, yeah, I, I'm selling all the beer I can make. Those are the ones who are suffering. I think the smart guys, the folks that, again, have seasoned veterans, 
that have a real good business acumen, that that aren't afraid to ask questions. They're not afraid to go outside of beer and ask other CPG leaders for whether it be from Procter and Gamble or or Unilever or Clorox or whomever it might be. How are you guys surviving? How do you guys build brands? Those are the ones that are going to come out stronger after COVID's done. And then the runs that were, I think the ones that were, didn't have a, a solid foundation, those are the guys that are dropping off by the wayside now. That That's what I see happening, Kerry. Mm. I know retailers and probably distributors, the smart ones are. They're already going through a natural skew reduction. We, we, we missed our spring sets. A lot of them have been just completely canceled. Some have been postponed or, you know, they're put off until, ah, eh, we'll do some tweaks in the summer when everything feels better. But if I'm a distributor or I'm a retailer, one of the biggest lessons I've learned right now is I don't need that plethora of brewers and brands and all these different packages. I don't need them. And we found out really quickly from when COVID first hit what consumers wanted and what retailers wanted and what really drove our business. And I think that's what's happening right now. That, that's a big lesson learned right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Those are those are great points and probably give some concern to the smaller breweries out there, though, that are, you know, that they're, they're part of that uh, expanding uh, SKU and so forth. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Hey, I want to I want to shift now to the lightning round. Are you up for that lightning round of questions? No, sure, sure, sure. Okay. So the the questions will be short. Your answers don't have to be short. They can be any length you want. <laughs> okay, all right. These are uh, some questions that I had uh, let the Craft Brewery Finance subscribers know I was going to be talking to you, and I said, "Hey, if you got a question for Bump, send it along." So these are these are from uh, listeners and the readers of that. So okay. here we go. Question number one. Bump, what are some strategic incentives that suppliers should be offering their distributor reps to maximize off-premise sales? All right. So I'm going to take this one with a grain of salt because I'm saying incentives. Why do you guys need to offer these guys incentives? Aren't aren't these the same distributors that that promise to take care of your brand and, and sickness and in health and, and, to, and to get it in a distribution for you? I mean, aren't these the partners that you hopefully went through your due process with and said, these are the right folks for me. These are the folks that, that know how to build brand. I mean, I don't, I don't know why you need to offer up incentives to ask them to do the job you're paying them to do anyway. Aren't they making money off your brand? But uh, I, I guess that's kind of the negative side. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said it quite like that, but, but I'm going to stick by that one. But hey, if, if consumers want your brand, if consumers truly want your brand, that, the brewer's done a great job at building points of differentiation. They, 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 they've driven brand awareness. They've, they've encouraged consumers uh, to pick up their brand, whether it be through their tasting room or through samplings or, or on-premise distribution. Shouldn't the distributors just be doing their job anyway and, and getting it on the shelves for the consumers to take off? And, you know, that's the way I look at that one, Kerry. I guess if anything, if, if I'm a brewer, and I, I want to incent, or I don't know if it's incent or incentivize, but you, you can correct me on that one. But it, I, I guess I would come to the distributor and I'd say, I've done my homework. I, I went out in the marketplace. I know my brand better than anybody. And I know who drinks it. I know what the demo profile looks like. I know which class of trade I should be in. Here's a specific 
targeted store distribution list that that my product should be in. This is where it should be priced. This is where it should be on the shelf. This is who I want it adjacent to. This is why this this retailer needs it. I've already made retail chain calls. I've, I've secured distribution. It's already authorized for you. All you need to do is, is get it on the floor or get it on the shelf. I've got us in the ad program already. Uh, the retailer signed off with mandatory five case displays in the aisle, at the end of the aisle, um, in, the, in the gluten-free section, in the produce section. I've got that all done for you. I've already done the heavy lifting. Um, you know, if if anything, if if, if I'm going to change anything, it's going to be probably my my package mix, which you brought up earlier from sixes to twelves, or I'm going to change my price mix where, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have a, a TPR. I'm going to offer some price incentives to drive trial again and hopefully get it on the floor and remain in stock. But I, I think I think if if the brewers have done their job and they pick the right distributor and they've got the right brands and they've got points of differentiation and a loyal following of consumers that they'll they'll seek it out and they'll try and pull it off the shelf. The qualities, I didn't even talk about quality, but I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's a given. It, that's what I'd be doing. Carrie, that, that's the incentives I'd be doing is let me help you make more money off my brand because it's already got a, a huge following and it, this is the kind of style, the can, the size that, that goes into these classes of trade. All you need to do is get it at retail. That's all. And I'd hold them accountable for it. That's my incentive. Love it. That's great. Okay. Next question. What is the most effective way for craft breweries to analyze what off-premise sales opportunities they should target? Okay. All right. So that's a really good question. I, I like that one. And and I go back to, to, again, the brewers and probably the distributors too. But from, from a brewer perspective, no thy consumer. Who is she? How often does he shop? What does he like to do? Does your brand represent adventure or authenticity or craftsmanship? Know who your consumer is. And that's, again, I talk about folks that will survive. These are the ones that have strong business acumen and knowing who your shopper is, that's that's almost anti. That's anti for admission. The second thing is, hey, where do they shop? Do, do they like to buy your beer in convenience stores and, and 16 ounce cans? Or are they looking for 12 pack cans? Are they a, are they a lager drinker? Are they an IPA drinker? What do they like to do? So if you don't know where they shop, it's hard to give anybody a direction, but I like to know who they are and where they like to shop. I also like to know what's in that market basket. So if it's a fresh food or it's a fresh meat or it's a, a sushi or it's fresh vegetables, I know that consumer buys multiple times a week. And I ought to have my brand in those categories where he or she's shopping two, three, four times a week. All right. So it's cross, it's like cross category. Know what's in the market basket. I know which stores are most likely to sell your brand. I mean, it, it amazes me, Carrie, that when we do ABP uh, annual business plans and help brewers and distributors come up with a mutually agreed upon plan it's amazing that I want 100% distribution on all my packages. That's unrealistic. And if a distributor says yes to that, they're a liar. That, that brand's not going to be everywhere because it doesn't belong everywhere. Know the stores. Uh, so if I'm a craft brewer, I want to know what the largest craft stores are in my distributor's footprint print, 
or the largest craft stores within a particular retailer or a class of trade. I want to know which stores have the greatest growth trends for craft or which one is does craft have the highest share in or what which stores have the, the best demographic makeup around my portfolio. I, I, I got to know that because if you don't know where you want to go, you're going to get lost real quick. And then here's the last thing, too, is. I want I want to see brewers ask distributors and distributors. I think the beer distribution network is the best anywhere in the world. And it's the best business in the United States. It's just it's by far the best. But ask your distributor partners where they think your brand or your package uh, would, would sell best and compare that to your list. And if there's a, a good mix and overlap of, of stores or retailers or on premise locations that you guys both agree on then there's your target list. Hey, let's get this done within what, 30 days and or 60 days. And that's how you hold people accountable. So that's the way I would do it. I, mean, I think that's an efficient and effective way for breweries to really analyze uh, off-premise sales ops. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Next question. How should suppliers, breweries, I suppose, be supporting their off-premise customers during this time? All right. So suppliers, and they're off-premise, and we're not talking about on-premise then, right? Correct. Okay, all right. So once again, I, I've got to make this point because we've just finished up our first quarter 2020 business reviews for all 114 of our retailers. We have. We've just it was been all virtual, which saves me a ton of time on the road. But here's the first thing that I tell, I, I tell my retail partners, and it's usually – at a VP ops, VP merchandising, then beer buyers or category category buyers. I'm saying, what has been the number one growth category across your entire store? And chances are, nine times out of 10, it's been beer. And that 10th one that didn't say beer is because he or she didn't do their homework. Beer has been the number one driver. So I say it's number one because your distributors have done a magnificent job during this whole C-19 issue and delivering and packing out and building displays and, and making beer the number one top dollar generator for your chain or your stores for 10 consecutive weeks in a row. So we, we encourage brewers and distributors to have that conversation with their retailers, ask them questions, reinforce the value and the size of beer and what you guys have done. It, it, we're not suffering out of stocks like like paper towels are or like disposable diapers are because we deliver direct to the stores. So you got to reinforce that and remind them of that. All right. Number two, and I think this is really important, is we've been doing this. And I, I think brewers and distributors can do it, too, is you better start monitoring your inventories and you better start doing a better job at forecasting the demand because because it's sunny outside now and consumers want to get out, I'm telling you that there's going to be a massive out-of-stock issue coming up over the next couple of weeks because I look at what brewers have in inventory. I look at what distributors have in inventory. And there's a simple model that you can develop to look at consumer pull. And we're going to have out-of-stock. So distributors, brewers, and retailers better start talking together about inventories and how to avoid out-of-stocks. In fact, Kerry, I'll send you the top five takeaways from a retailer perspective from our Q1 business reviews. And number three 
worry for retailers was remaining in stock on the hot movers in the beer category. That, that's a big one. Another thing I'd be doing is I'd be scorecarding performance. And I, I talked about the importance of scorecarding before. And here, here's an, it's an easy one to do. I don't have to be sitting across from you in Worcester to have this meeting, but I better have crystal clear communications on a regular basis uh, on what I'm doing, what you're doing, because I think about what Mr. Bush said a long time ago. Don't make any mistakes, but he didn't like surprises. So there should be no surprises when it comes to inventory build or expectations or a game plan. Everybody should have a game plan that when that dimmer switch gets turned on, these are the chains I'm calling on. These are the stores I'm building displays in. These are the stores that I'm moving from warm to cold. We should have that game plan ready to go. That's the way, I think the best way suppliers should be supporting their off-premise customers is communications, managing expectations, talking about what I'm going to do, what I expect of you, and then scorecarding. If I promise I'm going to do something, I'm going to scorecard that and give it to you and say, Carrie, this is what I did, and this is how our sales improved. So that's kind of my, my take on that one. That's great. A lot of good stuff there. So next question. This is an interesting one. And this this is this might be one that uh, gets some tough love on the answer. We'll see. (laughs) Okay. The question is, what can craft suppliers do to compete with the larger packs when they don't have the flexibility to create new package sizes? Okay. So we we talked a little bit about that one, but let's 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 kind of go back in time. That's a really good question, too. I like that one. I talked about consumers initially panic loading and they panic loaded on suits and 30 packs for, like I said, the first three consecutive weeks price. I think price was a motivator then because, you know, if I can buy a 30 pack and, and we saw some retailers selling 30 packs at, at nine ninety nine, and they were, they were good quality beers. So folks go, Hey, I'm going to back my truck up. And I'm going to have as many, bush lights as I can. I'm going to buy as many as I can on there. But we think price was an initial motivator uh, coming out of the gate just so they didn't have at-home out-of-stocks. And that made sense. We saw following that 12-pack cans and 12-pack glass. And and again, those are still the biggest packages in, in, in the whole scheme of things. And if, if you're not paying attention to that or consumer trends, then I think you're in a world of hurt. If you're stuck with with bombers or you're stuck with just four sixteens, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it because no matter no matter who you are or what your price is, if if you're trying to force a consumer to pick up a four sixteen because it's easier for you or you're only making six 12 ounce cans, you're not going to survive. You're just not going to survive right now. And that's that's the business acumen I was talking about earlier on is you got to understand the the environment. Carrie, I, I think right now, I think unemployment is going to hurt everybody's pocketbook. You know, whether it's store closings or, or tasting rooms closing or it, it, things are going to hurt the bottom line. So if you if you don't have a strong brand message or you don't have solid, competent leadership or you don't have an effective sales or marketing team in place right now, then trying to make a 24 pack ain't going to help you. It, it's, it's going to cost you more money than it, than it, than you're going to get a, a, as a return. If, if you insist on selling only direct to consumer, then you don't understand the situation we're in right now. You just, you don't understand the importance of, 
of distributors and, and, and chain or off-premise, mass off-premise distribution. To, to me, it's not about low prices. It's not about 24-pack cans or, or having the best IPA out there. It's about having that sound business plans that include, again, that, that off-premise distribution. Um, it, it, it's, t- it's about having strategies uh, for your branded stories that convince the consumer, you know, if they want to buy a 12-pack and you're only in sixes, if that brand has that awareness and it's got that story, the consumers will pick that up for you. If, if your brand is worthy of it being in the basket, they'll do it. Um, tactics like these targeted stores that are big six-pack stores that are big 12-pack stores that are cans only or they're IPA only or they're, or they're 416 only. If you don't have that type of basic information, then simply going out and making a 15-pack or making an 18-pack, you are not going to win. Why not? Because Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors, they're the best. They're the best efficiency brewers in the world. And if you think you can can compete with them on packaging and pricing, you're wrong. They will beat you every time. So don't think you need to go to 15s or 18 packs because somebody else does that. Be yourself. Don't try and spend all this money redesigning package lines because you want to be like somebody. You want to be like Anheuser-Busch or you want to be like Molson Coors. Don't do that. Be true to yourself. Build that brand message. And if it's six if it's six-pack cans or six-pack glass, then create a message for the consumer to pick that up. If you can get 12-packs, and again, I think 12-pack cans should be part of everybody's DNA right now. But that's nothing new. That's, that's been going on for years, for, for a decade, whether it's, it's premium beers or whether it's craft beers or whether it's imported beers. That 12-pack can has been a growth engine forever. And if you're just now realizing that, it's probably too late. So I, I know, you know, I know I probably went off the deep end and maybe hurt somebody's feelings on that one, but, but that's just the way it is right now. And that's just the way it is. Yep. That's, that's the tough love. That's the tough love. Yeah. So here's, here's a question on pricing. So what effect on beer prices, wholesale, retail, do you predict, or, or even what are you seeing maybe given the current operational environment? So I guess a couple things is, and I hate talking about pricing in, in general, you know, in general terms, but we haven't seen price increases going into effect right now. We haven't seen that. They, they typically go into effect March, April period. We haven't seen that, Carrie. We also haven't seen a lot of deep discounting at retail either. I talked about that 999 30 pack. That was that was unique and that may have been that may have been some repackaging of some brands i I use bush light as an example it was not bush light so don't misconstrue that but that may have been some distributors uh taking packages out of the on-premise arena so they wouldn't have to dump them or or waste that liquid and they simply repackaged them sold them to retailers uh, through the regular channels and they were able to reduce some prices because you know, they had a certain amount of date left on them. So, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of, of, of hot prices going on and I don't think you need to do that. Um, what we have seen, I guess, are two or three things we've seen when we do see TPRs out there, 
they're not as deep as they have been. So instead of getting a dollar off, it's maybe it's 50 cents. Or instead of being a, a three-week TPR, it's a one-week TPR. Um, or instead of me giving you, you know, two promotions a month, it's one promotion a month. So we're looking at brewers time, trying to get back some money by changing that promotion frequency. We're looking at that. The second thing we're seeing, which I think is a smart move, is I talked about strategies that knowing what's in your consumer's market basket. So if I'm all about health and wellness and I'm all about better for you and you and you do a study on, on what's in my market basket, you're going to see a couple things rise to the top. These things are always in the market basket. I'd be asking my distributor or probably my retailer first is, look, I understand your consumer in your store. One of your concerns is foot traffic. One of your concerns is driving market basket size. I can help you do that. Put a 10K stack of my two brands over here in the in the produce aisle or in the seafood aisle or in the cheese aisle because that's what's in their market basket. And I, th- I think that's what I'm looking at in terms of of, of pricing and in terms of merchandising effectiveness. And, and I guess the third thing would be we talked to retailers at the end of 19 on uh, what they wanted to do to drive business in 2020. And again, most of that's been put on hold because of COVID. But what they said was we want our brewer partners and our distributor partners to educate our consumers. They call them guests, but whether it's a guest, whether it's a shopper or a consumer, it's the same thing. Do a better job at talking about your brand attributes or about health and wellness benefits or about what products um, go best with this type of style beer or, or uh, this is what this is. This is the charity or this is this is who we stand for. This is our sustainability message. Do that. Educate our shoppers. And we think you'll do a better job at, at uh, you know, driving up market basket and helping us improve our profit profitability, too. But that, that's kind of that, what I'd say about that one. Great. So here's the last question from our lightning round. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the question is this, and this is this is a this is a good one. I think everyone's going to see this coming. So the the question is this: What is the best policy regarding beer recalls due to out of code beer in the marketplace, and should the retailers be reimbursed? All right. So uh, that's a hard one. That's a tough one, and. and we work, like I said, 114 off-premise retailers. They're not affected right now by this. They're just not affected. The on-premise guys, they got beat up. And and I'll say a couple things about this one. Number one is I think that the beer distributors have lost ground and they've lost credibility. And they probably they're probably going to lose a lot of business post-COVID because they I don't think they did the right thing compared to what wine and spirits distributors did for the on-premise retail channel. So we've got about 7,500 on-premise guys that we talk to on a regular basis. And most of them had the same thing. Weekending 315, everybody was pretty much shuttered. But they had bought in a shitload of beer, wine and spirits, for March Madness. And and St. Patrick's Day, and um, you know, opening day of, of spring training, and opening day of baseball. They they had counted on on consumers coming in and, and buying all that beer and all that wine and all that spirits. They 
they paid cash. I mean, every state's got different laws, but you, you're with me on this. And they, it's not I can get it on credit. I got to pay you. And then come 315, it just everything shut down. And these guys were desperate. These 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 on premise operators were desperate. They they had two or three problems. One of which is, man, I'm I'm out all this cash. I've I've been asked by the governor or or, or by the state to shut her up. Um, I can't get guests in here, but I'm stuck with all this stuff. Well, I, I need to I need to get money back to stay alive to to withstand this storm. So they appealed to their distributors, help us out. The wine and spirits guys. They stepped up and what they said was, look, we're going to work with the ABC boards, but we're, we're going to do our best to save you. And what ended up happening, Carrie, was in the majority of cases, the wine and spirits guys, they went back. And if I sold an on-premise guy $10,000 worth of, of spirits and wine and that he, he or she couldn't sell, then I went back. And I gave him or her a check for $10,000. There was no markup. There was no discounting. It was what you paid me. I'm going to pay you back for those goods. And they took it back just to help them get by, to help them keep staff in place, to help them pay their rent, to help them keep open. Because we didn't know how long COVID was going to be around. The beer guys, and believe me, I, I know that there's laws for a reason. I believe in franchise laws. I believe in consignment laws. I believe in those things. I do. I'm a supporter of that. But the beer guys almost unanimously across every state, every every market, every on-premise retailer we talked to, they said, we'll give you a credit. We're not going to pick up any beer right now. We're not picking up any barrels. We're not doing any of that. And we'll give you a credit on on future purchases. And the on-premise guys go, future permit, uh, future purchases. I, I don't even know if I'm going to be alive in 30 days or or 60 days. I need that money now. And the majority of beer guys didn't do the right thing. They just they left these guys hanging out to dry. And that was sad. That was a sad thing that that we took a giant step backwards. Almost almost every on-premise retailer I spoke to said, "Bump, come post COVID 19, I'm going to remember." Which distributor was my friend and which distributor left me hanging out to dry? So I think post-COVID-19, beer is going to be in, in, in worse shape. And, and that hurts, Carrie. That was a big hurt because I think the beer guys are, are the best guys in the business. And, and not to go and seek out ABC direction or, or NBWA direction um, that, I, that I know about, they didn't, it didn't happen. It was, hey, we can't do it. It's illegal. It's called consignment. I can't do it. Can't do that. So that's kind of my my answer in a nutshell here. And in, and in terms of of compensation, yeah, I, I think I think the on premise guys should find a way to get compensated, whether it's a split between the distributor and and, and the brewer and the on premise retailer. Absolutely, there's got to find a way to 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 make to make things right again. And these are these are unusual times. And I think that the ABC board has been very lenient and very smart, very diligent in what they're doing, but they've been very smart. And I, I think about Texas where where some some beer distributors allowed grocery retailers to use their trailers to move product from grocery warehouses to grocery stores. It wasn't beer. That that's against the law. 
You can't do that because that's that's a value that that a that a, a beer distributor is giving to a retailer. But the ABC board said it's the right thing to do, and we're going to let it go this time. I think we should have. I think beer, the beer industry should have taken a stronger stand on that one, Carrie. And I, I think we we let a lot of people down, and that that bothers me. And I, and I, I hope we can make it up to them, and I hope we just we do the right thing. That's a, yeah, that's some great great insights there, and definitely lessons for you know breweries that are maybe even breweries that are out there self distributing is hey get ahead of this thing you know think about this from the longer term view is that when folks come out they're going to remember so that's that's some good good advice so hey I know you need to get to batting practice my man you swing <laughs> that bat so I want to want to wrap up just with a final question so. Um, <laughs> If people want to get in touch with you, obviously you've given them a tremendous amount of advice and information, really great stuff. Really appreciate it. Um, people want to get in touch with you. They want to learn more about you or your business. What's the best way for them to do that? So probably four ways. They can call you, Carrie, because you know you know how to get a hold of me. That's that's the first way to do it. The, the second way is um, you, you can always call my cell. Um, and I don't know if you're going to supply it at the end or not, but I'll give it to you. It's it's two zero three 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 eight one two zero seven. Things are pretty jammed up from four in the morning till midnight because we do European customers in the morning and we do Pacific Rim customers in the evening. And I'm on East Coast time. So but I promise I will get back to you. You can text me or, or, or call me. The third way is hey, drop me an email. Um, it's a long email, but it's an easy one. It's bump like bump on a log, bump at bumpwilliamsconsulting.com. That's an easy way to get me. And then the last way is you can just go to Bump Williams Consulting. We've got a, a good website. It's getting rehauled right now, but um, we've got a good website and, and people have been reaching out to me that way as well. So those are probably the four best ways to uh, to get in touch with me. That sounds great. And, you know, Bump and I have been working together for many, many, many years. I highly recommend you as a, as a, as a person. I always, I always appreciate the time and the insights and just the breadth of knowledge. I mean, you talk to so many people, you have your great combination of kind of the relationship side and the data side. And that's, that's a really rare combination. So I want you to know, I appreciate you. And hopefully folks who've, who've listened have, have gotten a lot of good information out of this. Terry, thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed being here. I enjoyed working with you when you were at the distributor. I enjoyed working with you. I still enjoy working with you at, at Wormtown. Um, you asked me really good questions. And if there's anything that I can never do for you personally or professionally or any of your associates, you know how to get a hold of me. So it's it's been a real honor. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed being here today. Great. All right, Bump. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Stay safe. See ya. You too. Whoa, 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 Bump, I forgot I got to ask you one more question. It's really important. You got a minute? Yeah, sure. Sure thing. <laughs> okay. This is this is the most important question. I can't believe I didn't ask it. All right. So we, we are both big baseball fans. I know my heart is broken here. We're, you know, we're mid-May. We should be well into the season. But as a baseball fan, I'm curious, what lessons do you take from your time playing the game that might be useful in the beer business? And particularly now with this financial crisis. You could take this question any direction you like, whether it's competitiveness or desire to win, overcoming adversity, where, wherever you think would, would be good. All right. How, how much time do we have? Because it, <laughs> I'm jamming a bunch of stuff in here, but it's probably going to be loaded. It's a great question. I, I'm, I'm so happy that you remembered that one, Kerry, but 
Um, number one is I was, I was always in shape. I was in shape to, to play a full season and I never let myself get lazy or complacent. So you can equate that to beer business. Don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Stay sharp. Stay, stay ahead of the game. Look what's going on. All right. Um, I think hard work effort is a, is another thing. I was always, I always tried to be the first one to the practice field. And I was always the last one out of the batting cage, just, just trying to get better every single day. I was never, I was never happy with what I did yesterday. I had to do a better job today. And I think, I think folks in the beer business or any business should, should think about how do I get better? I shouldn't get complacent on this one. Um, I was never shy. I, I, I knew that I wasn't very good, but, there were players around me, veteran ball players around me that had seen I – this is the combat leader and the peacetime leader that I talked about before. He said, I talked with veteran ball players all the time on what I needed to do or what I needed to work on to help the team win. It wasn't all about me. It was always about that team. And they were pretty forthcoming and tell me how bad I was and how slow I was and how I was a good batting practice pitcher, stuff like that. But And, and I think – when I ask questions of the veteran ball players, or I ask questions of the managers or, or, or the coaches, I think it's important to listen to what they tell you. Yeah, just don't go through the motions of asking a retailer, what are your growth strategies? And they're not paying attention. Ask them and, and, and listen to what they're telling you. Um, I, I you, you said it before, Carrie, is, is you can, you can even ask Kevin, this one is, Hey, I, I, I played the game hard. Um, I played hard every day. Um, I, I, I tried to break up two to keep an inning alive. I I tried to hit the other way to, to advance runners. And if, it, if an error was made, and everybody makes mistakes, if an error gets made, I never pointed a finger at anybody and said, hey, that was a failure. Uh, I, I, I tried to tell my teammate, hey, shake that off. And tomorrow at practice, we'll work on that one. We'll work on hitting that double cut. We'll work on, on, on feeling those backhands. We'll take care of that for you. So helping, helping others around you get better, that was a big thing. Um, I, I, I tried to take pitches I, to, to wear other pitchers down. I mean, that's something that the Sox used to do to get into the bullpen. But I would pretty good eye, and I could take pitches and foul stuff off and just to let other, my teammates get an eye at, at the delivery and maybe pick up a sign. I, th- this is one that I – it's a good parallel, but I, I studied – before the game started, I would walk the whole field. I would run, stretch, and stuff like that. People think you're just loosening up, but I would study the entire lay of the land so that I knew I knew which outfielders couldn't throw during batting practice. I, I knew how long the grass was in the outfield, so it would be a fast or a slow ball. Once you hit a, a shot out there, would it slow down or speed up? I, I saw how close the stands were to the playing field, so I, I knew that if something got overthrown, I could either take an extra base or I couldn't take an extra base, uh, base depending on how close the stands were. I saw how deep the warning track was, and that's important to do. Uh, so, you know, again, whether this guy's going to get the ball and I could tag up or not. Um, I took note of wind direction. So I, I knew if I hit a ball to left field and the, and the ball's going or the wind's going left to right, that's going to be a fair ball. It, it, the wind's going to take it back into play. Um, I watched batting practice, and I saw, I saw who had the hot stick, and I saw – who had holes in their swing. So when I was pitching, get ready to pitch, I knew how to pitch to somebody and what not to throw. Uh, I talked to my teammates all the time about game situations and what were they going to do if the ball got hit to them and what was I going to do and who was covering the base. I studied old scorebooks back then, Kerry. We didn't have 
we had VCR tapes. You don't have the sh- stuff they get today, but I'd look at old scorebooks and say, what happened in this situation and what did this guy do and what pitch did I throw to him? And, uh, you know, I just, I, I tried, I tried to find which players were hot, which were, which were dogs. I looked at my own stats and I, and I took note of how people pitched me and people weren't afraid to pitch me because I couldn't hit anyway, but uh, where they played me in the field. And I watched infield practice and I, I took note of maybe who had a sore arm or who didn't have the range to, to pick up ground balls or who couldn't get a ball in the gap. I, I took, I paid a lot of attention to pitchers warming up in the bullpen and, and you could listen to the pop of the catcher's glove to know whether that pitcher had his fastball working that day, or he was going to be throwing me junk all day. So, you know, small things like that. I, I did all the time. Um, I, I, I stretched and ran sprints and I took extra long toss or extra swings if I thought I needed it just to be ready to play. Uh, Pete Rose was my hero growing up in Ohio. And so hustling was a big thing and, you know, never, never saying no or never saying quit, never, never stop playing until the final out was made. You know, I tried to be the guy out first off the bench and hustling out to my field. So it made the other team wonder, what does this guy know that, that, that we don't know and we just can't beat this guy you know and i think as 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 a pitcher or as anybody else you the first thing you think about are goals you set goals for yourself goal number one was let's try and win the last game of every season because if you did that you won the championship the last game of every season is the championship and let's try and win that one as a pitcher i know dave lapointe said he had a great a great ruling, a great list of things. He said, Bump, when he pitched, his first thing was, I want to throw a perfect game. If, if you miss the perfect game, I got to throw a no-hitter. That was number two. If I blow the no-hitter, I have to throw a shutout. I got I have to keep those guys off the board. If I blow the shutout, I've got to pitch strong enough to win the game. All right, so the, the, I guess the last thing I'll tell you is me looking at numbers, me talking to consumers, me talking to distributors, me talking to retailers, um, looking at, at new brands and innovation and what's in the market basket, all those things is the same thing as as when you go to a game or when you play the game. I never, ever took my eye off the ball. And I, I had that goal in life, and it was always to win. So you'd said that up front is never quit, always out there to win. Those are the things that that I talked about that – when I look at the business world, everything I needed to know about the business world, I learned between the diamond, the lines on the diamond. So I, I just think that that being champions is a lot of attitude and it's it's a lot about helping other people get better and about being better yourself and not getting lazy. So that's a long answer to to the bonus round question, but you and I both love the game. We we love playing baseball, we love watching baseball and it's like I said, everything I learned in business world, I picked up from sitting on the bench or playing the game. And that's why I love it so much. That's awesome. Yeah, there's so many parallels. I heard, I heard, I don't know who said this, but somebody, it's a quote stuck with me. It's, you know, it's like how you do anything is how you do everything. So your approach, right? So your approach to baseball, hustle, scrappy, staying in shape, not getting complacent, you know, paying attention, goal setting, never quit. All that stuff is so applicable 
to business to to any any part of life but yeah you hone those things with with the game you love and then you then you can take them outside of that so that's that's really cool that's great stuff and never lose the heart you know that's what it is i i think heart makes a difference on this one no doubt anyway awesome my man pleasure talking to you and uh, we'll talk again soon thank you for listening to the craft brewery finance podcast where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery for more resources tools guides and online courses visit craftbrewerryfinance.com and don't forget to sign up for the world famous craft brewery finance newsletter until next time get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today